last week, we talked about uh, yellow and blue make green and other thoughts on God. That was the title of the talk. We uh, talked about the idea that uh, God <clears throat> emptied himself, came to the earth, and uh, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, and there was this unique way in which he walked and moved on the world where these two completely opposite things coexisted in a way unlike anything we've ever understood before, and in reality we can't completely understand. And then we talked a little bit about how marriage is like that. That there is husband and wife, and two shall become one, and there is something that happens that we cannot fully explain that describes the oneness that can happen among two completely different people. And then we extended that to say that same kind of thing, uh, that same step of emptying ourselves is a step that Jesus wants us to take. Uh, we looked at the idea of us emptying ourselves of pride and allowing Him to fill us in a way where the two completely distinct things, us and God, become one in a way in which He dwells within us. We talked about a lot of passages that speak to that, one being the fact that uh, I think Paul says it's the mystery which is Christ in us, in you, the hope of glory. That He resides within us and that His life is lived through us. His life changes who we are, our desires, our, our passions. Uh, the very things that we long for are um, a part of who He is and what He desires. And I think the Scriptures teach that when Christ came to dwell among us, there are several uh, kind of implications for that. And I think there are theological implications for us as a result of his coming. One that we looked at last week was this idea that he emptied himself. The second idea that we're going to look at this morning is that he dwelt among us. I think there's some significant things to be understood about the way in which he dwelt among us. Uh, the scriptures say this in uh, 1 John or in John 1. I mean, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In another version it says, the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We're talking uh, for quite a while now in this series, Imitating the Incarnation. To actually see the way in which Jesus lived and moved and had His being among us, and then asking the question, what are the implications then for us? How do we model or mirror what Jesus did in the Incarnation and so this morning, what I want to do is consider the ways in which he dwelt among us and then seek to imitate a few of those ways. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Our imitation of God in this life must be an imitation of God incarnate, or Jesus. Our model is the Jesus not only of Calvary, but of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands, and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions. But the Jesus that we are wanting to model our life after is one who we're supposed to imitate in these kinds of ways. And I want to talk about two specific ways in which we can kind of model uh, or mirror our life after the way in which he dwelt among us. The first way is proximity. First way is proximity. What I mean by that is Jesus modeled with his life a closeness with us. 
a, a nearness. The fact that uh, he was even described as with us. One of his names that was used uh, is literally to say that he came and was with or close to us. And what I was thinking about over the last couple of weeks as I've been uh, considering this idea of him with us is that uh, there are numerous stories throughout the scripture that speak to him being close, to him being in proximity with people. One of those uh, is a particular wedding. Uh, maybe I thought of this because I've had probably four weddings in the last month. And so I've got wedding on the brain, and so I thought of this particular passage. And um, it, it starts off, it's found in John 2, and it starts off and it says this, and it'll be on the screen, and if you want to turn there as well. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We'll pause there for a second. Uh, Jesus is, uh, it just says kind of casually, is invited to the party. Uh, but Jesus, as we know, is, uh, this is not his first rodeo, it's not his first wedding. Uh, he has a bit of a reputation, at least among the religious community, as being a uh, party animal. A guy who likes to hang out, likes to be at weddings, likes to uh, be around a certain type of person. Uh, or at least that's the way the religious uh, people began to talk or describe him. Um, they confronted him at one particular time in the scriptures, and they said to him, uh, you are so unlike John the Baptist, right? That John the Baptizer walks and lives in this way, and you tend to walk in a completely different way. Jesus responded in Luke 7, he said this, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus, even described by them, he's quoting them in some ways, right? He's saying, you're describing me as a friend of sinners, of tax collectors who are like a hated group, uh, that you are a glutton, a drunkard, uh, that he was uh, with the low of society other passages speak to. And uh, certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not too excited about the way in which Jesus was living. And they were letting him know. And so, as our story goes on, uh, Jesus is in the midst of this wedding, and the passage says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, now, I'm sure at the time of Jesus, this sounded much better than it just read right there. It probably is more like, Mother Dearest, um, I appreciate you coming to me, and, and here's my thoughts. But uh, that just sounds pretty bad, I'll be honest. I know if I said that to my mother, yeah, it, it wouldn't be good, right? So... Uh, I love what his mom says, uh, next line, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, that's a solid mom move right there, right? Like, that's parenting 101. Uh, your child says, like, well, I, this is not my time, and she just doesn't say anything to you, and then says to everyone else, uh, he'll take care of it, and walks out, right? <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's genius, right? Uh, that's, that's why we like Mary so much, right? It's genius. 
Now, the passage goes on to say this. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now uh, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, or they've become drunk, then they serve the poor wine, because then they have no idea that it tastes not as good, right? Um, But now, but you have kept the good wine until now. Like, what are you doing? That makes no sense. Uh, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, it's a story of uh, Jesus' first miracle. The story of him being among a group who were partying for a significant period of time. They drank all of the wine, which uh, probably was good wine, but not nearly as good as the stuff Jesus brought out uh, later, right? And uh, what I think this passage demonstrates is that Jesus has close proximity with the people. And I'm going to explain why I think, but I think what it demonstrates is a personal, relational, and geographic proximity to people. That he was actually with them, around them. That he cared about the things they cared about. That he was intentional about saying that this wedding is going to go from being a good wedding to like one of the best weddings. That I'm going to bring out the good stuff. That I'm going, to, I'm going to be a part of this experience. Obviously he knew the couple. Obviously he knew families. He was invited. They wanted him to be a part of it. But I think what this passage also demonstrates is that Jesus spent 30 years simply in proximity with the world before he ever ministered in a public way. 30 years. This is his first miracle, his first like um, example to the world around that he is God incarnate. And prior to that, for 30 years, Jesus lived among them, worked with them, went to little Jewish boys' school, played at the Sandlot, hung out, was a part of whatever was happening in their world, uh, grew up under his mother and father, learned the family trade, um, had friends that were fishermen, that, like he did all these things for 30 years in proximity. And here's the shocking thing, his proximity with people, his closeness with people was so natural that when he started to preach in his hometown, or when he started to declare the kingdom, all of the scriptures tell us that people were surprised. Right? He sits down and he opens the scroll at the temple one day and he reads it, and then everybody goes, what happened? Whose authority is he speaking with? He would do something like this miracle and people would be like, where did that power come from, right? There was no like, uh, oh, I thought there was something different about you, you know? Like, <laughs> I get it now. You're the Messiah. That, like, it's, it wasn't clicking for anybody. 
30 years of just Jesus, and then he starts to act in this way, and they're going, what is happening? This makes no sense. I mean, he lives so close with people in a, uh, in a way, I think, that surprised them. There was a holiness that fit into the culture. It was a holiness that could still be around people in a way that was um, non-intrusive to the point where then when he began to reveal those things more, people then took notice. I think what we have in the Incarnation is God entering so fully and so closely into relational and physical proximity with people uh, in a, a way of humility, in a, in, in a, a humanity in a way that um, he was in pursuit of something important and that, as we know, is reconciliation. He wanted to be made right. He wanted the world to be made right with God, and so he felt the actual way to do that was to move into the neighborhood, right? To become a part of their world. And he took that idea so seriously that he chose to live with them. And I think for us, it, it forces us to, to take seriously that same call, to say that we are to live right up close with people, that we're to rub shoulders with those God desires to redeem. That we can't practice and demonstrate Christ-likeness in the way Jesus did if we do it at a distance. It forces us to move close. And I think in some ways what that does is it forces us to step out of our comfort zone. Right? It forces us to get out of the things that we're comfortable with and maybe engage people and engage society and engage one another in a way that's maybe a little bit more uh, nerve-wracking. Uh, as your bulletin cover says, it's where the magic happens. It's the title of the talk for this morning. But I think there's something about us stepping out of our comfort zone. And uh, for each of us, we all have different levels of comfort zone, right? We all have different ways in which uh, we feel a little bit out of our element. I'll tell you one recently uh, for me. Uh, where I've been kind of stretched out of my comfort zone. I, uh, this last year, I was kind of evaluating my life and um, evaluating the time that I get to spend with my daughter, Everson, and, and I thought, man, there's got to be a real practical, tangible way that I can spend uh, more time with her. She's six years old. And uh, my wife spends a considerable amount of time with her with her hair, uh, fixing my daughter's hair. And so I... Uh, for some reason, I'm questioning my, my thinking at this point, but I decided, I told my wife, I said, you know what, this, from now on, from this summer on, I'm going to spend time helping Evie with her hair, and I'm excited about this. Now, for some of you, you go, that's not a stretch, right? you got to remember, for the last decade, I haven't had hair, so <laughs> it's... It's not like I uh, have a lot of experience personally with this, and certainly not with girls here, okay? So um, it was, it's definitely a stretch. So I decided, okay, I'm going to commit to be a part of my daughter's uh, hair process. And, um, and so I started this summer with uh, hair removal, okay? That's where I wanted to start. And uh, I thought that would be my introduction before I got into like braiding and all of those kinds of things, right? So, uh, this is a picture of my daughter uh, since she's um, six. 
And this is her right at the beginning of summer, where now I'm taking over some of the hair duties. So I'm really excited. And this is her with long like hair extensions in. And uh, then it was my job to uh, start the process of like removing the extensions and uh, getting her back to natural hair, right? And uh, so um, I started to cut it out. Here's what that looks like. Yep, that's her hair cut out, the removal process. Yes, I'm learning along the way, right? And so then here's her with just the cornrows underneath that, right? And uh, so then we had to undo the cornrows, condition the hair, uh, wash the hair, get the hair ready. This is her right before going in to get her hair washed. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so now... Now, some of you are going, well, yeah, you know, no big deal. So let me tell you, that, that was a minimum of five hours of my life, right? So this is why I committed, because it's going to give me, like, some up-close and personal time with my daughter. So we commit to that. Now, this is, like, uh, midsummer or whatever, and uh, we're going to get ready for school, and so it's time for me to do her hair, okay? It's, like, the whole next step. And uh, so I consulted my favorite hair website, uh, it's called Chocolate Hair Vanilla Care. So, I, kid, I kid you not. I, I kid you not. So, <laughs> yeah. So they have a they have a whole they have a whole hair gallery right that I could choose from, uh, like flat twist braids and um, some tutorials on how to do it and. So I, can, I, I do a little research, a little time, you know, invested, and then started the process of, uh, of cleaning her hair, moisturizing it, braiding it, and so Evie and I spent another over five hours together um, because it, I'm, a, I'm a novice, okay? And uh, so this is her right before her first day of school. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right? With that. Uh, thank you. Uh, flat twist braids and all that kind of stuff, right? So I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm feeling confident, feeling comfortable. I'm now extending my comfort zone, and I'm like, okay, I'm in a really good spot. And then it's uh, like, we're getting close to the holidays, and my wife said, hey, we're going to set up an appointment for Evie uh, to go get her hair done. And I was like, oh, that's great. And I said, that, that should be fun. And then Shannon reminded me of my commitment, right? My, like, you're going all in with the hair, right? So... Uh, we set up the appointment for my day off, and uh, we, Evie and I get all our stuff. I pack a little backpack. I get her all ready, and uh, we go off to the hair salon, right? And um, the, we walk in, and it was everything I imagined uh, a woman hair salon to be, right? Um, we walk in at 10.30 a.m. to the salon, and this is uh, a picture of Evie kind of uh, starting the process of getting her hair going. And uh, we walk in at 10.30 a.m., and I uh, see Dr. Oz is on the TV in the background. I watch more Dr. Oz than I ever have in my life. Uh, some, like, mid-afternoon talk shows and stuff that I didn't even know existed. Um, and there's fantastic pictures all over the room of, like, women's hair options. And uh, so I'm in there, and I started at 10.30 a.m. with Evie, and then this is her partway through the process of, uh, of getting some hair um, put in. And um, just to give you a little picture, I left 
the salon at 7.30 p.m., right? So I get in at 10.30 a.m., leave at 7.30 p.m., and uh, to, I'm out of my comfort zone. Uh, that, that's my point, right? That sometimes in life you walk into something that you just never realized when you started that it would take you to places you didn't imagine. Now I'm suggesting that that's what the Incarnation does for us. That it forces us to move to a place where we're out of our comfort zone. We feel like we're out of our elements. Uh, we're not comfortable with where we've been. And we can't do it in a way where it's really at a distance or sanitized. Right? Like, I think most of us want to reach out. Most of us want to make a difference. Most of us want to have an impact on people's lives, but we prefer to do it uh, the way that we kind of prefer to clean up, right? Where you put on rubber gloves, and you step back, and you kind of like just try to clean it up at a distance. Or you see those guys in the park, they like have that little squeeze trigger, big long thing, and then they put it in the bucket. They don't have to touch anything. Like, it seems that a lot of times the way we move among people is, um, I'll get close enough, but don't, I don't want to get anything on me. I don't want to like really be all the way in. But I think if we move in the way of Jesus, that it requires that we be on a journey with the poor and the vulnerable. It requires we enter into messiness. It requires us to embrace chaos, sadness, difficulty. Um, and if we think about it, God could have easily stood at a distance. He didn't have to come. He could have uh, rode it in the sky and then uh, directed all of us each morning to wake up and read the next message. He could have uh, just broadcast it loudly. He could have spoken it to each of us in, uh, in our minds or our hearts, but not be present with us. Even thought he could like somehow put it into our data plans where we're mindlessly scanning our phone, and all of a sudden something pops up and he communicates. He could have done it however he wanted. But there was something about the way he chose to move where he said, I'm going to come close. I'm going to be with. I'm, I'm going to step into the messiness. And I think one of the ways that we're supposed to do that is to follow him. To follow him into that messiness. I was talking with a group on the Urban Plunge, and uh, we were just talking about influencing people's lives and how do you be a part of that process. And we've been talking about that over the last uh, month or so. And it struck me as we're walking, uh, we're walking like I think through the park at this time, and we, we make the idea of influencing people or being with people way more difficult than it has to be. What we sometimes do is only imagine it as like the Morrises going to Tanzania and living in a hut and learning a language and uh, getting malaria and like you have to go all in like that or you can't do it or the Gustafsons in Siberia, or some other missionary in some other place. Um, but it, it's not that. I think it starts with just your own traffic patterns of life, right? It starts with uh, your movement, the people you live with, people you work with, play with, people that sit at your table during the break, um, people that are uh, co-workers with you. Um, all of that, I think, is part of the process of stepping out of our comfort zone. It's actually being with those people. It's actually knowing them by name. It's actually 
being a part of their world in such a way that you rub shoulders with them. It's not just Tanzania. It is that. But it's so much more than that. It's sharing with people. It's asking good questions. It's coming prepared to give an answer. It's allowing the values of your life to radically speak. It's all of those things. So Jesus demonstrates proximity. I think the second thing he demonstrates is a sacred presence. A sacred presence. What I mean is, uh, apart from just the idea of him being in proximity with people, there was a way that he was with people that made them feel valued and honored and important and significant to him. There was a way in which he moved among them that showed signs of respect, that built up their dignity, uh, that made them know that they were listened to. That's what I mean by sacred presence. He honored, I think, the sacredness of everyone he met. There was a way he moved among us. There's a story told in Mark 5, also found in Luke 8. Uh, Jesus is uh, on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. Um, They've been uh, calling him, asking him to come, and uh, they're in a hurry. She's um, about to die. They fear for her life, and so they get Jesus, and they're like, come, come, we got to go, we got to go, we got to go. And they're all in a hurry, and the scripture said that there's like this massive crowd around Jesus. And they're kind of all following Jesus, and Jesus is off to uh, Jairus' house, and everybody's just like in the way. And, uh, and just this swarm, massive people that's going to that particular destination. And uh, the passage says that as Jesus was uh, walking, there was a woman. And it kind of introduces us to the woman in the story and describes her as a woman who had a bleeding disorder and that for 12 years had been bleeding continuously. And had gone to numerous doctors, had spent her life savings, had tried any and everything to be healed. Uh, She was kind of ostracized from the community. Uh, There was a chance she probably wouldn't have been able to worship in the tabernacle or the temple in any way. Um, She was outcast, and she was doing anything to be back to community life, to anything to be a part of a normal world again. And... uh, the, the passage says that she reasoned that if she could just touch Jesus, that she'd be healed. If she could just like reach out and, and touch him, that the, the significance of who he was would uh, change who she was. And so the passage says, in amongst all of the crowd, she reached out and touched Jesus. And uh, Jesus stopped. Whole crowd's moving in one direction. He stops. They all stop with him, and he says, "Who touched me?" And everyone kind of looks at him weird, and he's like, "No, who touched me? Somebody touched me." And Peter, it's always Peter, you know. <laughs> Peter's like, "Duh, Jesus! Like everybody. I mean, this is a huge mass of people. We're getting bumped into. Everybody's touching you. No biggie, okay? Let's just keep going. We're gonna be late. We got an appointment, right?" And he's like trying to get it going. And Jesus goes, no, who did? And so they start asking around. And the woman knows she's caught now, right? I mean, they're all like searching for who touched Jesus. And she's like, oh boy, Um, I've got to say something. And so the text says this, but the woman knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. 
And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And another version, it said, The woman, knowing what had happened, knowing she was the one who had touched Jesus, stepped up in fear and trembling, knelt before him, and gave him the whole story. The passage goes on to say that Jesus uh, told her, you know, your faith has made you well. He called her a daughter. And then uh, they said, okay, let's get going toward Jairus still. And all of a sudden someone comes and says, it's too late. Jairus' daughter has died. Uh, You missed the window of opportunity. We know the rest of the story. He's like, I'm going to go anyway. Goes anyway, raises her from the dead. And um, what I think we overlook in this story is a little phrase that I find quite interesting. The part that we overlook is where the passage says that she told him the whole truth, or she told him the whole story, right? She shared with him the story. And I'm going to guess that she didn't just share with him like, hey, it was me that touched you, and I was healed. End of story, right? I think what she did is she said, Jesus, I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. I've heard that you could change my life. And, and then she probably went on to tell him, 12 years, and doctors, and no solution, and I feel horrible, and I'm not a part of the community, and there are all these things that she told him her whole story. I can only imagine that was not a minute long. I can only imagine that he, in the midst of being in a hurry toward a destination, having a task to do, ministry to do, someone calling him, urgency, whole crowd around, he stopped, was fully present with her, and heard out her whole story. And after hearing her whole story, he then said to her, you know, your faith has made you well. He called her a daughter. He treated her in ways that uh, she'd never been treated before. He was like fully present with her in a way that changed her. I don't know how often you could say or I could say that we were fully present with someone in that same kind of way. Maybe you've had a moment like that where you were, you like, God did something unique where you were in that moment and you were fully, fully present. A couple, um, two months ago, I shared this illustration at uh, Moody Bible Institute. I was speaking at chapel. Uh, so for some of you, this might be a little bit of a repeat. But I had one of those moments in life where I was in college. I uh, served in a youth group and had spent a significant time uh, with the youth group on a regular basis. But because I had been doing that, I also felt like, man, there's got to be another way to serve in the city um, outside of just this group. And so um, my junior year of college, I committed for the year to every Thursday night, or I think it was every other Thursday night, we would go to uh, the State Mental Institute, um, to the psychiatric ward, and uh, we would just be present with people. And uh, I would go, and uh, we'd go to Ward 6, was the ward that we would go to. It was uh, an all-guys ward, and uh, I would just sit down and have conversations with people. And um, I would play ping pong, and um, 
that never went very well because I would hit it and then I'd run around and grab it and then hit it again and they, the return game was not as uh, like I imagined when I first started going there. And I learned to, to just be with people in a way where it wasn't a rush, there was no hurry, it was just being able to sit with people and listen and hear stories that at times didn't make sense and then uh, there were times where you could hear a story and you realize that this person was sharing something deeply significant with you. And on one particular night, uh, this, I had been there for four or five, six months. And on this one particular night, I showed up. And I, I didn't know it was uh, gym night. Uh, nobody had told me. And so uh, we get there, and I thought, same routine, go in, hang out at Ward 6, uh, help everybody get their medicine, sit down, the tables, hang out, but it was like, as soon as we got there, like, it's open gym, we're going down, and they took us all to a gym that I didn't even know existed on the, uh, on the premises of the property, and they opened it up, and uh, we went in, and there were a bunch of basketballs and stuff like that, and uh, <clears throat> then all of the guys from Ward 6 came in, and I mean, I didn't know what to do, and so I just grabbed a ball. And I went over to a guy named Marvin, and I said, Marvin, do you, you want to play basketball? I'll just rebound for you. Why don't you shoot? And so played him the ball, and he shot and uh, completely missed. I ran it down, tossed it back to him, and for like an hour, it just he would shoot. I'd rebound, play it back to him. I'd tell him he was doing a great job. He would come over occasionally and be like, put his hand on my back and be like, you shoot. And so I would shoot once or twice, and then I'd give it back to him. And we just, for like an hour, just kept playing basketball. There was this smile on his face that I hadn't seen in a long time, and it, it felt like, man, this, this is really fun. This is so good to be a part of. And we're, it was time for us to leave. It was time for them, actually, to go back to the ward. And uh, so one of the um, crew came in and said, okay, everybody, put away the balls. we got to go. And so I told Marvin goodbye, and Marvin, like, started walking out of the, the gym. And then all of a sudden, Marvin turned back around. And he came up to me, and he kept coming closer. And I was like, oh, man, Marvin's going to give me a hug. This is pretty awesome. And so I go in for a hug with Marvin, and um, Marvin had other plans, and I was not expecting them, and he just came all the way in for the kiss, right? Which <laughs> I, was, I was not expecting. And, uh, and Marvin, because I wasn't expecting it, because it was like, like right there real quick, I tried to turn as best I could, and, uh, you know, like, Part mouth, part cheek kind of kiss, right? But it wasn't just a peck. And I was, I was hoping for a peck. But it was like he planted a good one, right? Where like, and before that I didn't know that Marvin had dentures, but I found out that he did. Because it, it was there long enough, it was wet enough, it was like, it, it was a full-on kiss, Right? And I kind of patted him on the back because I didn't know what to do at that point. And then Marvin heads off and goes back to the ward. And I go back to the dorm. And I'm laying in bed and falling asleep. And I'm thinking to myself, that was weird. <laughs> Not what I'd signed up for. 
was not expecting this at all. Like, what is, what is going on? And I remember laying there at first going, like, man, that's a weird experience. And then I remember going, man, it was like God reminded me of a passage in Matthew chapter 25 where he says, whatever you've done to the least of these, whether you've visited them, whether you cared for them, whether you provided clothes or food or whatever, whatever you've done to the least of these, it's as if you've done it to me. And I distinctly remember this thought coming into my mind, that I actually, that night, was kissed by Jesus. And it struck me in a, a way that I had not ever imagined it before. That the very way that we are present with people, the very way we can enter sacred space with someone, is the way in which we're actually doing it to Jesus. And he, likewise, will occasionally kiss us, right? And it's the story of presence. It's the story of being with people. And it reminded me of this uh, Henry Nouwen quote that I want to close with. He says this, More and more the desire grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It is a privilege to have the time to practice this simple ministry of presence. Still, it is not as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful, to do something significant, to be part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It is difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel that you are working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs, you do not simply like them, but truly love them. By our proximity and by our presence in the world, may the world know that we do not simply like them, but truly love them. Let's pray.